Good morning. My name is Emily. I'll be reading our passage today from Acts 17, verses 1 through 15, if you'd like to follow along. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came thereto agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. On December 9th, 1860, in a sermon on Jeremiah 420, Charles Haddon Spurgeon gives a stirring, beautiful, and convicting exhortation. He says, O my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, Let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay, and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let us pray this morning. Lord, you are a great God. You are greatly to be praised, and there is no other like you. You place rulers and principalities over nations, countries, and people, and you remove them just the same. You have built your church from a small group of men in the Middle East to spread around the world, and you have called your church to be holy, to be righteous, to walk in your ways. And so I ask this morning that as we look into your word, as we see the things that you would have us to do, that you would convict us of our sin, and that you would remind us of the goodness of your grace, and that you would be glorified in the preaching, the hearing, and the obeying of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
So as we read the quote that I just said, or we hear it, we think it sounds nice. We might even frame it, we might hang it in an office or in our home. We might feel the weight of the statement and realize what it means. But more often than not, I fear that we go on about our daily lives living as though the statement were the furthest thing from the truth. And I believe that we do this, you and myself, because we do not want it to be true. All around this nation and in this world, there is this belief that if God is love, then people cannot go to hell because a loving God cannot simply send people to hell. But have these people or even ourselves asked the question or wondered, maybe it was our imperfect understanding of God's love that makes us uncomfortable? Sin, death, and hell are hard topics always. We understand sin quite well, but we can't really say we know much about death or hell. Hell seems to be a place that's a fairy tale land. The media makes movies about the devil and paints it in a light picture. The, ta- the Catholic Church believes that you can get out of hell as long as you do enough good works. And really, honestly, the eternal suffering is hard. So we kind of push it to the side and we pretend that it's not there. And as we do that, we push knowing God to the side. And because we don't believe the right things about hell or even God... We don't force people to leap over our dead bodies and drag themselves out of our arms to go to hell. Rather, we sit idly by and we watch them meander their way through life into an eternity apart from the one true and holy God. And in addition to this, my fear is that 2020 did not show the world a Christian community that is willing to face discomfort and open arms with open arms in order to serve their neighbor and love others, but rather it showed our nation and maybe the world that we are so concerned with our individual comforts, rights, and freedoms that we have forgotten about the demands of Jesus in his gospels. To love our neighbors, to turn the other cheek, to honor Caesar, and to be faithful to God. We have sacrificed gospel doctrine and gospel living for the sake of comfort, And I'm not just speaking to people who have refused to wear a mask during this pandemic. I'm speaking to all of us because when I look around, and I include myself in this, I don't see a church that is passionate about letting the gospel spread, which requires one day, one to lay down their rights. I'm seeing a church that is holding on to their rights and letting the gospel fade. And I do not believe that this is specific to Community Evangelical Free Church of Harrisburg in the 21st century. I think this is an issue that has affected Christians for all times and all places. As I think we will see in the text this morning. And so you might be wondering after this introduction why you chose to come to church this morning. You might be tempted to log off the stream. And I understand that these words might come across as harsh or hard. And I pray that I am not sinning by creating strife within the body. But as I read through the text, as I was preparing to preach this sermon, I believe there was a purpose to what Luke is sharing in Acts. I was joking with Benjamin this morning that it kind of seems like a flyover passage, that big things happen before and big things happen after, but here Luke gives a few small details and moves on. But what Benjamin was quick to remind is that 
the small passages matter as much as the big passages do. There is hard in this passage, but I also see much beauty. And I see beauty because the gospel is present in these words. And the gospel takes hold of the most unsuspecting people, flips their lives upside down, and enemies of God become children of God. So this morning, we'll be in Acts 17, 1 to 15, as Emily just read. Paul has arrived in Thessalonica. He is on his second missionary journey. Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia, and there is about 200,000 people in the city at this time. Uh, Paul has come to Macedonia because he received a vision in Acts 16.9 of a man urging him to come to Macedonia to help them. Thessalonica was a free city in the Roman Empire. Uh, This meant that they controlled their own affairs and political situations. And this was not common in the Roman Empire. Many of the cities had Roman uh, military occupations and Roman governments set up. But when Paul arrives in Thessalonica, as he does in every other place he arrives, he starts to teach and reason with the Jews in the synagogue. He had an advantage here because he was Jewish. He used to be a Pharisee. And because he spent his life before Christ, attempting to be the best Jew that anyone could ever be, as you see in Philippians 3, 4 through 8. The text says that Paul was there for three Sabbaths, or what we would understand as three weeks. According to scholars, though this would have been an initial visit, all in all, Paul spent four to six months in Thessalonica. And as we see in other books of the Bible, in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul had a burden for the people. For even after fleeing, he kept his, pe- uh, his people there to give him report. And you see the love that he has for the people in writing letters to them. He wanted them to have correct understanding of the gospel and to live in light of right and true biblical doctrine. And so I believe these 15 verses give us options that we have to choose in this life. But it also has requirements for those of us who are Christians. Because Christ suffered and died and rose again, we should take joy in his suffering. He didn't die for mundane lives or an apathetic people. He died so that we could find joy in him and in him alone. But the issue that I see is that uh, facing most Christians today is that we try to find joy in the things that he's given to us, whether that be food drink, relationships, sex, family, etc., fill in the blank with whatever you want. We take the good things that God has given to us and we turn them into idols by believing that they will give a greater joy than we could receive from God. By doing this, we believe that God is distant and does not care about our day-to-day, moment-to-moment, the most intimate details of our lives to the most vague details of our lives. He created and simply stepped back. Now, you might say that you don't believe that. But the reality is that I think every single one of us believes that. You might know that God is good and that everything that you have has been given by him. But just because you know does not mean that you have connected your belief to your knowing. If you believe the true things you know about God, you would put those two things together and you would find joy in the right things of God. 
So some people in this passage, they have put the two together and they have found joy in Christ. But others did not. Others chose to live for their own comfort and to worship their own idols. As we see from the Jewish reaction in verses 5 through 9. And then later again in verses uh, 12 to 14. So for Emily and I, 2021 will probably hold a a few firsts for us. Early this spring, we will welcome our first child, a little boy whom we are naming Haddon after Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and we hope to purchase our first home. We will spend time with family, and hopefully at some point this year, we will gather with friends in restaurants, eating good food and having good drinks at some point when COVID hopefully leaves this world. It sounds like a pretty good year, and by the world standards, we are well on our way to owning a nice home, paying off student loans, driving new cars, and in Pennsylvania standards, having a hunting camp somewhere up north in the woods. We are well on our way to fulfilling the American dream and living a life of comfort. But I think here is the issue. And as I've stated before and I've said to many people, I believe that the biggest issue in American Christianity is that we live for comfort. I don't think this is a modern Christian issue. I know that this has been an issue for centuries amongst Christians. So when I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on the Stylites. Uh, the Stylites were a group of ascetic Simeon monks uh, around AD 390. They believed that the closer you physically were to God, the closer spiritually you would be to God. So what they did is they would erect these pillars that were uh, 10 to 20 feet tall, probably had a two-foot circumference on the top of them, and they would climb up there and stay there. They would sit day and night, rain and blazing sun, warm and cold, through all conditions, because they believed they were more holy the closer they were to God. They would rely on others to bring them food and drink, the necessities. And people looked up to them. They were an example uh, that uh, Stylites saw an issue with the culture. They uh, saw an issue with the comforts of culture, and because of that, they thought the answer was to remove themselves from the culture. Or, Fast forward to today, alcohol. There are probably many different opinions in this room right now about the use of alcohol. And everybody believes their opinion is the correct opinion. The church saw an issue of drunkenness and the effect that alcohol was having on the culture or is currently having on the culture. And the response was to move to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and declare that all use of alcohol, regardless of drunkenness or sobriety, was sinful. So the church saw a comfort of life, and they chose to move to the opposite end of the spectrum rather than correct the issue and to find right joy in that. Now you move to the other side of this, where there's Christians... um, You know, I honestly think of the Reformed community, of people who have said, I have freedom in Christ. He has died for me. He has paid for my sins. And because of that, I can enjoy things such as alcohol. I can enjoy things such as a good meal. I can enjoy things uh, such as sex within the uh, confines of marriage without restraint. 
But because Jesus died for us, they believe that we can do these things without consequence. So what we get is a group of Christians who go to a brewery and drink to the point of drunkenness or close to it. Or we have a group of Christians who use swear words as a normal part of their language. But yet I don't understand how they can do that when Ephesians 4 and 5 exists. Both are wrong to remove ourselves from culture and to fully embrace the culture. Because for the first, God has called us to have dominion over culture. He has given every good thing to his people as a good gift to experience him through those things. And the second is wrong because Jesus didn't die so that we could continue on sinning. You have been baptized into death, as Romans 6 says, and raised with him to new life. Walk in that newness. Our core issue, though, is not comfort. The issue is belief. When we choose not to believe true things about God, then we end up worshiping our own comforts and our own idols. We as a world have chosen each day to wake up and to choose to find purpose, identity, joy, belonging, and the good gifts that God has given to us rather than in God himself. So in one of my favorite books, Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderselt, the author uh, offers a helpful practice for us to see how our, um, our, our issue is belief. He calls it fruit to root, and this is what he says we believe about the effects everything we do or say or think has on what we believe. So stick with me as I read a small section of this book. Jeff says, it was our first day off, and I had just returned from dropping the kids off at school to find Jane still in her blue bathroom, drinking her morning coffee. It was clear she wasn't doing well. Jane was struggling with a lot of anxiety over our children, where were they with Jesus? Where were they, going to surrender, were they going to surrender their lives to him? Were they safe in our neighborhood? How could we protect them? And what about school? Should they actually be going to public school? What were they being exposed to? She was being crushed by the weight of so many concerns. Clearly, Jane was experiencing not the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the flesh. She was experiencing strife, not peace. Why? Because at that moment, she was not believing the truths of the gospel. So I started asking Jane the questions designed to help her see the, her unbelief in the gospel. First, I drew a tree on a napkin and asked Jane what she was experiencing. She said she was experiencing anxiety and fear. So I wrote anxiety and fear hanging from the tree like fruit. I also asked what she was doing or trying to do. She said she was worrying and trying to figure out how to control the situation. So I wrote down worry and desire for control. Two more pieces of fruit hanging on the tree of Jane's life. Next, I asked her, in light of what you are experiencing, what are you believing about yourself right now? How do you perceive who you are in the situation? She responded, I am in control. But if you're in control, I asked, why are you anxious and why do you worry? She said, well, because I'm not in control, but I believe I have to be. Earlier, I shared how Tim Chester teaches that beneath every sin is a failure to believe a truth about God. I'm convinced that the same applies to what we believe about ourselves. Because we believe lies about God, we also believe lies about ourselves. 
We believe God is unloving, so we in turn believe we are unlovable, disposable, unwanted garbage. We believe God is not our Savior, so we have to be the Savior to our friends, our spouses, or our children. Jane was believing she was supposed to be in control like God, sovereign and all-powerful, and she was believing that her worrying could actually fix everything. She believed her worrying would solve problems, but in fact, it was creating more problems. What do you believe God is doing or has done, sweetheart, I asked. I feel as if he has stopped loving me, Jane said. No, I asked you what you believe, not just what you feel. You feel anxious and afraid, but what do you believe that what God has done? I believe he has stopped loving me. I believe he has lost control of what's going on with our children, and he's abandoned me, Jane said. I wrote these answers under the fruit next to the right side of the tree trunk. And what do these beliefs tell you about what you are believing God is like, I asked. He is, he is unloving. He is impotent. He is absent, she said. I wrote all those down, too. Having identified the points of Jane's unbelief, I turned the questions around. What do you believe about God? Who is God, I asked her. And as she spoke, I wrote down her answers on the other side of the tree trunk, starting at the bottom and moving up with each question. He is love, she said. And how do you know that God is love, I asked. What has God done to show you that he is love? Jesus died for me, she said. That's right, I said. I want to remind you, sweetheart, of God's love for you. While you were a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were an enemy of God, he loved you enough to give his own son for you. He loves you so much. Even when you don't trust him, he still loves you. When you're full of worry and anxiety, when you try to be God for our family, instead of letting him be God, no matter what, he loves you. And I went back to that first question. What else do you believe about God? He is powerful and in control. How do you know that? What has he done to show you this? He created the world. He overcame Satan. He defeated sin. He rose again from the dead. That's right, I exclaimed. If there ever was a time when it looked as if God had lost power, had lost control, it was when Jesus was dead in a tomb. And yet God, completely in control the entire time, he was so in control that what looked like defeat was actually victory over Satan, sin, and death. In his death, he crushed them all. And so the last question he asks is, what are you believing about yourself now? I am loved. I am not alone. And God is with me. I am not powerless because I am more than a conqueror through him. And what are you experiencing? I asked as I pointed to the top of the tree. And as Jane spoke, I wrote down the new fruit she said she was experiencing. Love, joy, peace, and hope. So, Therefore, our option here is not to, uh, our option is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. So we give up our lives for the sake of the gospel. Salvation's a wonderful mystery. Every one of us in this room or who is watching the live stream who is a believer knows this. Think back to the moment when you were saved, and that very moment God took a heart of stone a dead heart, and he made it come to life. He 
made you new and has given you a new identity and a new hope and a new purpose in life. And through this, he has changed your mind and he has allowed you to place your strength in the work of Christ. And the result of this is to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So as I said in my introduction, my fear is that 2020 was a year that showed the world that we care about ourselves, that we are not willing to lay down our preferences for the greater good of our brothers and sisters. And I know this response is much more diverse than that, than that as I have been deeply ingrained in the church and have seen people on both sides of the argument uh, when it comes to masks, when it comes to racial injustice, when it comes to the election. Each one of these people have chosen to love Jesus, honor their brother and sister who see differently. But I am also surrounded by people who are not a part of the church or who do not consider themselves Christians. And they have come to see Christians as a people who are more concerned about who is in the White House than loving the people around them. We cannot be known for this. We don't have a choice as Christians. If we are known for this, we are using Jesus as a political idol, just as the Jews did during the three years of his ministry, and just as the Jews do here in this passage. If you notice in verse 7, so it says, Then Jason had received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. These people were concerned about their man-made king being the one who was taken away. They were not concerned about Jesus being the one true king of life. Jesus did not come to save the people from Roman rule as they had hoped. He had come to save them from the oppression, from the oppression of sin, from themselves, from the sin that seeks to destroy them. He came to liberate us from a different kingdom, a kingdom of darkness that does not bring life but death, and not a finality of death, but an eternal death. So when Jesus saves us and gives us a new life, his first command is to love the Lord our God with all of our soul, mind, and strength. The result is true belief and a new heart and a new identity. And because of that, we can choose, and we must choose, to look at those around us and fulfill the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. So Paul understood this in verse 9. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason, the rest, they let them go. So Paul knew what was going to happen. And him and others chose to leave by night because they knew that if they cited uh, more uh, uh, um, rioting and unrest, that uh, Jason and the other Christians that were there would have a harder time uh, being a gospel witness. Paul could have chosen to say to the people that the message that he had was so important that they should be thankful for the opportunity and that Jason should eat the loss, but Paul chose to choose gentleness and wisdom here. So when I lived in Kansas City, there was a large Middle Eastern population, and as it was a refugee city, and many students would come to study at the local universities. We would go to local coffee shops and strike up conversations with these students. And one of the first times I had a conversation about Christianity with these students, the first words out of my mouth to these students who were Muslim was that Jesus is God. And in that moment, I had lost my audience with every single one of them. 
Was that statement false? No, it was not. But was it wise for me to lead with that? No, it was extremely offensive. And I immediately lost my audience with these students. Paul calls us through his example, and Luke calls us to be gentle and wise. Don't force your agenda just because your message is true. So we're required to have a response. So you can sit here and choose to listen and think what I'm saying sounds nice or maybe makes sense or is good for others, but not necessarily for you. But because Christ rose from the dead, we are required to have a response. The Jews in Thessalonica showed a response to refusing the claims of Christ and his apostles. But the Jews of Berea chose to believe. There is not a third option. You are either a child of God or an enemy of God. So verses 5 through 9. I'm going to speed up here because I realize we're running out of time. The Jews do not like what has happened in the city, and they seek to bring Paul and his companions before the civic assembly. Obviously, Paul and his companions got wind of it, and they left. The issue is that the missionaries were proclaiming the kingdom of God, and this is rivaling the kingdom of Caesar. They did not want to let go of their idols. They would have rather served a human king, a king that they would see and hear, a king that was easy to believe in. But this king believed in would one day die, and he would stay dead. So I would ask you, are you like the Jews? Have you placed your hope in a man or a man-made system? If Christ came back today, would you recognize him as your God? So you have a choice this day. As the Spirit leads us to know the truth of the gospel, allowing us to accept this message. Verses 2 to 4. And when Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Early in his arrival, Paul claims that the only Messiah, the only the Messiah was appointed to suffer and rise again from the dead. And what happened was that during the three weeks was that only some Jews believed, but there were many Gentile converts. And it emphasized women here because of the culture. Macedonian women, according to scholars, had a well-earned reputation for their independence and their enterprising spirit. If they believed it was their own decision, not something their husbands decided for them. Later in the passage, verses 10 to 12, Paul goes to Berea, and there's a much different reception. Says that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek, not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So in our community groups, we have been going through the book, The Gospel, by Ray Ortland. I have greatly enjoyed this book. I have loved the discussion that comes out of it. And for the long time in my own life, I believe the gospel was for the moment I became a Christian and that it stopped there, that it didn't have any impact over the rest of my life. But what I've come to see is that the gospel is not for one moment of life, but rather is for all of life. Because the gospel is the good news of Jesus. It is the news that all of us were dead in our transgressions and destined for an eternity apart from him in hell. It is the news that we are not good, that none of us will ever be good enough to save ourselves. It is the news that death is not, does not have the final say. And Jesus came and lived the life that you and I could never live. He was a baby, a little boy, a teenager, and an adult, and he never sinned. He continually submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he was laser-focused on that tree. 
The gospel is the good news that Jesus died the death that we should have died. That his blood was shed and his heart stopped beating. It is the good news that he was buried in a tomb. It is the good news that he was dead. And because death does not have the final say, because death does not win, because death did not hold him back, it is the good news that on the third day he rose from the dead. And he didn't bring our sin back to us, but left our sin in that grave. And that has sin, and our sin has stayed in that grave. It is the good news that he has given you and I a new heart, a new mind and a new purpose. We no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for our comfort or our everyday lives. We no longer live for the American dream. We should now live for Christ, and we should have a kingdom dream that sends us out to share the gospel with our neighbors and those who are around us. And so what do we do about this? How do we let this good news transform our life in every day that we live? So a couple application points for you all. Be intentional about, help, about people helping you believe the true things you know about God. What you believe about God will be the most important thing you ever do. And so as a family... Gather each night and talk about what each person knows about God and how they are believing or not believing these things. Buy the book Gospel Fluency and go through it with a friend. In your community groups, when someone confesses how they are struggling with work or with their relationships, ask them what they are believing about God and remind them of the truths of the gospel. And what this should lead us to is evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is not just a good idea. It's a command given to us by Jesus in Matthew 28 to go to all, nation, all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Discipleship. Meet with people regularly who don't know Jesus and who know Jesus. Study the Bible with them and answer questions. Go door to door and get to know the neighbors of our church and in your neighborhood. We are a neighborhood church. We're surrounded on all sides by homes. How many of the people in our neighborhoods come to our church? How many of us know our neighbors? How cool would it be for us to see on Sunday mornings young saints and old saints alike walking down these streets into these doors to be a part of this body? What would it look like for the people in your neighborhood to gather in your dining room or to gather in your backyard and study the Bible? We must trust that God is in the business of transforming people for his glory. So let's be, all be instruments of that transformation. Seek to serve your brothers and sisters in 20, 2021. So say provide. Community groups are a great way to do this. Serve here in the church. We are always in need of people to serve. And study the Bible. Let the Bereans be our example here. Let us take the teachings we've heard and and assess every word with the scriptures. Let us believe the truth. Let us know as theological liberalism takes place in in the lives of people in this city and in this nation, that the Bible will be challenged, but know that this word will never fail. It has stood the test of time and the scholar's critical eye. So may we not be a people of comfort, but may we be a people who say, I have given up my life for the sake of the gospel. I have chosen to be last. I have chosen to honor Christ through the way that I live my life. May we be a people who turn to live, who, who live to turn the world upside down. 
Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the word that you have given to us. I ask that you would change our hearts, that you allow us to walk in the ways of your truth, of your gospel, and that we would live not for our own sake, for our own comfort. We would live for you, that our neighbors, those around us, would come to know you and to love you and to honor you as their God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.